Off the ball. He said he was going to come. And I said, listen, Johnny, you don't have to come. I mean, I think Laura just, you know, I think they were having another child at the time. I said, Johnny, honestly, you don't have to come. And he was like, no, I'll be there. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Sunday paper review. Great to have you with us. Joe Malloy uh, with you on this Sunday. And so I'll go through the front pages. First of all, Sunday Independent. Queen Katie's the main picture. It's Katie Taylor. Hands aloft at Wembley last night. Taylor sets her heart in Crow Park coronation after a successful defence. And beneath that, it's Jurgen Klopp uh, lamenting loss of control and Leeds defeat. So he's saying... Uh, the problem is we cannot control this type of game at the moment, says Jurgen Klopp. We have the mail on Sunday and it's a picture from Anfield last night. Late, late winner stuns Liverpool, eases pressure on Leeds boss Marsh. Picture of Leeds celebrating that last minute winner on the back page of the mail on Sunday. Sunday World. Again, it's uh, Liverpool last night and it's Katie Taylor as well. The picture is of Klopp with his arms crossed looking down at the ground. Leeds 2, Liverpool 1. Deadpool, it's a Halloween horror show for Klopp with Reds title hopes in tatters as Leeds uh, stun Anfield. Kevin Palmer here talking about full-blown crisis for Klopp. And then Taylor made Katie still the undisputed world champion. Katie Taylor once again crowned queen of world lightweight boxing, says Sean McGoldrick, as anticipated the Brave Fighter defended her WBA, IBF, WBO, WBC and Ring Magazine lightweight belts at Wembley Arena last night. Her seventh successive undisputed title defence and she beat uh, the Buenos Aires native Karen Carvajal who was a 12-1 to outsider it must be said but beat her convincingly on points. Sunday Mirror it's uh, similar again Katie Taylor uh, defends her belts and calls for Crow Park bout and a picture from Anfield last night again of Leeds's uh, Somerville celebrating the goal and Ronaldo sporting chance so apparently Simon Mullock here in the Sunday Mirror saying that Sporting Lisbon are going to come in for Ronaldo in January. The Sun. Apparently there's uh, what's another Ronaldo story. There's a new book out about Ronaldo very soon and it will detail just what a mess he thinks Manchester United has been as part of the book. It's a broader piece about his whole career but uh, he described Ralph Rangnick and that time at the club as a disaster. Uh, frustrated at the lack of investment in facilities at Carrington. Annoyed the club at evolved since he left in 2009 and shocked apparently how few players uh, shared his level of commitment. And then uh, Sunday Times front page sports section. Again, it's a picture from Anfield last night. Crescencio Somerville celebrating his winner for Leeds and beneath that Taylor retains title after easing past Carvajal. And on the right hand side we might come to a kit supplier blames FAI for liquidation, whirlwind liquidation is um, they're blaming the FAI that's J-A-C-C Very happy to say Kieran Cunningham is with us Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star Gavin Cumminski covers football for the Irish Times you're both very welcome Good morning Thanks Joe So Katie Taylor last night it was as routine as everyone had presumed this was just uh, taking a box exercise really Yeah it's what uh, what Jack Charlton used to call an earner I think and that's <laughs> It's, it's she's no different to any other uh, top boxer in that you know some fights you take because they're a huge challenge and you're up against a huge contender others are just to get uh, you know stay ticking over and for a payday and you know her last fight against Amanda Serrano was one of the best fights in recent years uh, at any grade male or female and the plan would have been to fight late September, early October against Serrano again in Croke Park. Uh, uh, they had provisionally booked two dates in Croke Park, two successive weekends, but they couldn't get Serrano to come on board. But it does look like uh, she will be in Croke Park next June or July and that uh, more than likely will be against Serrano and that would be an, a, a massive event. I think people would never gone but to boxing in their lives will want tickets for that because it will just be seen as a ticket, something to be at, you yeah. know, uh, no more than Muhammad Ali 50 years ago in Crow Park. Uh, and I would like to think it would be her farewell because I think there comes a stage when you have to get out when you're in the full year of health and mm. I hope she moves on. Eddie Hearn said after the fight last night, has to be Ireland next. And then she said, yeah, 80,000 people, it will be the biggest event in women's boxing history. So He says a lot of things though, Joe. He said that after the last Katie fight as well. Yeah. Yeah, so it, there's a massive legal problem, isn't there? Still, blocking the fight going to Crow Park, as in this in Matchroom or Sue, and there's there's a there's a whole legal case that's 
blocking the way for it to happen. With the Jake Paul, uh, the manager of Amanda Serrano, yeah, that's why it might ne- that could be an issue, but it might necessarily be a fight with Serrano. There's a couple of other options, but I think they will push hard to get Croke Park because uh, she's very keen on it. Mm. Uh, the hurdles here, like GA are on board, the Gardaí are on board, which you know has been an issue since yeah. the Kin and Hutch feud. Uh, the residents, I believe, are okay. They were keep, they would buy in with it. It's and different the, to five nights of Garth Brooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, like the residents would be looked after. They would get tickets, and you know the. So, I I think there's a lot of the hurdles have been leaked. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of. De- Spats like this one between Jake Paul and you know yeah. what he's on about. I did think Jake win last night. I didn't look. He, uh, he did, but he was fighting a, a fifty-year-old fighting a guy who's nearly as old fighter. as myself. So, yeah. uh, in fairness, uh, he's forty-seven. So, right. a forty-seven-year-old. And to what extent is Serrano just saying, "Well, I'll just buy another year because Katie's a year older"? I, I wouldn't say it's that. I think it's more money. You know, just push, push. You know, if I if I if I push it down the road for another eight months, you know they're they want she knows they want this fight mm. so eventually they have to once she gets offered she thinks okay I can squeeze another 100 grand out of them 200 grand out of them whatever so it ultimately always comes down to money so what is we're going back to Ireland England Ireland France and Crow Park in 07 aren't we there's nothing bigger that will have come onto these shores that's an international event I don't think I think it just it's it's and it's the first time we won't be using the biggest women's sporting event of all time. I just think it'd yeah, be, I think that's fair. It'd yeah, be just like what a, I can't think what else would rival it. Um, you know, you had a Europa League final, but that's you know compared to the, like this. The thing is, it's a TV event. Like it's still probably be on Dazon, which is an uh, an app that a lot of very few people have. Yeah. Like that's what. So it's, you can do your little sign up for thirty days. Yeah, watch yeah. It and get out. Yes, and forget to unsubscribe then for the next six months, which I do. Yeah. How much does it cost to rent at Crow Park? From what I gather, uh, they're hard nosed <laughs> in terms of negotiations. I don't want to go into it too much, but I've heard uh, from some people involved in boxing that uh, they're. For a supposedly amateur organisation, they're quite hard nosed in what they look for compared to a lot of professionals. This is Peter McKenna, stadium. yeah. Oh, well, no. He'll figure out. Well, won't he figure out what the bottom line is or what the gross uh, is, and he'll look for the piece of the pie. Yeah, yeah. they're good at that. There's no, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Yeah. Well, it's one of the like we might come to it at some stage uh, in this discussion because of the Sky and the TV rights deal. But there was a massive conflict within the GA in that, you know, we have this huge push now in towards pushing the club side. Uh, and you know, and pushing the grassroots and pushing what what we've been seen, even though a lot of managers and coaches want to get paid, but what we've seen is the pure amateur form of the uh, of the sport. Whereas on the flip side is there's a huge fina- uh, uh, imperative to make a huge amount of money because their bills are so great. And even if they take on, you know, there's talk of that we'll talk about down the road. But if they take on the TV rights thing themselves through expanded GA Go, Sky used to employ sixty people every match day. Yeah. Like that's a lot of bills the GA would have to pay themselves. So that's why Katie Taylor, Taylor Swift, whoever comes into the frame. Fair enough. Also on the front page then of the Sunday Times, kit supplier blames FAI for whirlwind liquidation. <coughs> this has been bubbling away all week. JACC, which supplies the Umbro strip to the FAI. Front page here, the mail of the on the uh, Sunday Times, Paul Rowan. So they've supplied the kit to the FAI for 30 years. They had debts of 13.3 million. They owed that money to a range of creditors, Ulster Bank, Revenue, uh, Deal Partners, Logistics as well, owed more than 7 million euro. So the FAI owed about 150,000 by JACC, which was due on October 24th. The FAI terminated that contract, even though JACC's solicitor said the company had promised to pay by the end of the month. And so what they're saying are they find it uh, galling that a loyal relationship which lasted 28 years was terminated on such a corner. And their solicitor, who's John Gallen, is making the argument that our creditors naturally wanted to protect their interests. And it would be correct to say that the FAI termination resulted in an immediate whirlwind which consumed JACC. Uh, So they're saying FAI showed them no patience and that seemed to spark a kind of panic which has resulted in all their creditors um, calling in their debts. Now, there is a a point made later on in Paul Rowan's piece. A well-placed FAI source said that there had been a series of late payments going back a number of years and disputed that the association's action this week encouraged other creditors to come forward. And uh, that's where we are, was kind of a 
an odd story out of nowhere. Business Post covering it as well. Game out of nowhere, but then if you look, kind of broaden it out, the FAI won't negotiate a New Jersey kit deal, I imagine, for next year's World Cup. Mm. That could be the one way of bringing in money around the women's team. Um, the uh, it's the first time the FAI are being uh, proactive as opposed to reactive, uh, as in this deal was made when Noel Mooney was interim CEO of the FAI. It was a six-year extension from a deal that's a relationship that goes back to 94 between the FAI and um, JACC Sports. There was um, there was pre- a flurry of press releases going on before the High Court news came out this week where, that were, to be quite frankly honest, they were unpublishable um, about the FAI from JACC Sports. Um, from a legal point of view. From a legal yeah. point of view. Um, and then there was when that was pointed out and asked for more, not much more came. But uh, yeah, we're going into... Uh, the FAI don't seem to have a problem. They don't want to be spending money on things they don't want to spend. But they don't have a problem taking going the legal route on this case because mm. they are looking... Again, they can... This, this is the new broom of the FAI trying to... Um, you have to go out and read it to, to figure out what the narrative is for yourself. We can't just spell it out. The, the Sunday Business Post has a line. Uh, yeah, Paul Rowan in the Sunday Times has a line that... Uh, that diverged. They're not the same. So yeah, I would. Uh, if you're, um, if you want to know what's going on in the weeds, um, go find these pieces and read about them. Yeah. Uh, just to mention, this isn't really a, a point to tease out and discuss. It's still very much an ongoing legal matter. But page five of the main section of the Sunday Independent, just a headline which catches the eye: John Delaney may face two million euro bill for emails. Court battle. Ex FBI chief could have to pay legal bill of watchdog and his own. So the state company's watchdog. That is the. Uh, Corporate Enforcement Authority. The uh, state company's watchdog is to seek a costs order that could result in John Delaney having to pay two million euro in legal fees after he lost the two and a half year battle to shield his work emails from investigators. This happened this week. I'm sure you saw that uh, news come through. So at the High Court last week, uh, Paul McGarry, SC, uh, for Delaney, he said that the Corporate Enforcement Authority was seeking to hold his client responsible for all of the costs of the protracted legal dispute and uh, John Delaney's SC said he would be objecting to any such order. So the CEA's costs include 40 court appearances and uh, this very long ordeal in trying to decide whether or not John Delaney's work emails were uh, allowed to be looked at or not and their bill could be in excess of €1 million Euro to date. So... Um, that's getting very costly and very messy. I wonder if we'll be concerned. any the wiser of John those eleven hundred emails when Euro twenty twenty four rolls around, or if there'll be even a chance. Like Champagne Football, the book by Paul Rowan and Mark Tig does deserve has to have another chapter in, at its next print run about this. Mm. But they might have to wait another couple of years because it's taken so long to even get to the point we're at now. Yeah, and now they're mm. going to go back to court to argue about costs. And if we're at two million already. Yeah. Add on another couple of years. How many years is it since it was the Gibraltar game? Uh, was that That's 2019. 2019. That's three yeah, years so ago, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. An ordeal. I'd say we'll, we'll be back in Gibraltar before, and it'll still be going on and we'll be writing pieces about Delaney on the phone in Gibraltar that night mm. um, next year. Um, guaranteed three points as well. Gibraltar nostalgia. Yeah. We've, run it, we've finally flogged Italia 90 to death so it's Gibraltar 2019 nostalgia. There is much coverage across the papers of the GEA rights deal situation. Sky Sports and the GEA no longer partners. Uh, Michael Foley writing about it in the Sunday Times. Joe Brawley effusive in his support of the BBC deal. Uh, Dermot Crowe as well as talking about it in the Sunday Times. Philip Lanigan, Shane McGrath, the Mail on Sunday. Uh, various people trying to figure out what all this means. Is this good for the consumer, bad for the consumer? Is this good for the GEA, bad for the GEA? Is it possible to tell yet? What's the, yeah, again, uh, what's the narrative? I don't understand what, what the primary narrative is. Um, everyone is writing about it. Um, like, w- what happened with Sky? Uh, did the GAA turn to the BBC because they'd have more control? Did they, did they turn to this GAA Go idea? Or did Sky leave because they didn't want, they wanted to expand it and make it look like Sky coverage? And the GEA were, were never going to do that. There is, um, yeah, there's a there's a there's a void of information there that we don't know, and, and it's quite hard to know, isn't it? No, it's, it's impossible to know until uh, it's actually sourced from Sky and the GAA, and those sor- the source referencing crosses over because no one's going to come out and say it outright. Because then we could get nobody wants to get into a case of he said she said yeah. after uh, after a, a contract has ended. But <clears throat> um, one point is made by Joe Brawley, who. Uh, 
Makes a really strong pitch to become part of the BBC coverage, to be honest. He, is, he, he showers praise on their coverage, which is very good, uh, truth be told. But um, he, he makes a very good point about uh, how millions more people will watch it now that it's on the BBC as opposed to Sky, which is true, you know, which is a fair point to be more. And we, it, it will get the, the coverage that, that in this part of the world, uh, outside of Ireland, than it, much more than it would have. And he said, one, it's just one Gary Lineker tweet away from hurling finally becoming a global game. I don't know about that. Like, mm. but um, there, There's stuff in uh, the, uh, around the whole thing that doesn't make sense to me, for example, because it's brought up in a few of the pieces that BBC will broadcast the All-Ireland Finals on, on one of their main channels, you know, which is basically BBC One or Two. Yeah. And if you look at, uh, like, 2024, for example, the football final clash with the Olympics... And the Olympics is going to be in one channel. And there's no way I can see the two channels being taken up by sport and one of them is what for the BBC would be a tiny minority sport. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. So Just BBC One Northern Ireland, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, but, but, but that, you know, they would... BBC, yeah, but the, the part of the promise of this is we're going to be out there on the main BBC channel. Like, but that doesn't make sense to me. Like, the whole TV thing in the GA, like, it's a long story and it's a story that um, has been complicated and there's been a lot of warring factions over the years. And it's, it's funny how we go now. Like, I remember doing a thing a couple of years ago. If you look at Jim Gavin's time as Dublin manager, I remember going through it all. And I think there were only three games between league and championship during his time in Dublin that weren't televised live. And some of the O'Byrne Cup games were televised live as well. But if you go back to when Dublin, modern Dublin football was born, was effectively... The 1974 All Ireland semi final against Cork, the reigning All Ireland champions. Can you remember ever seeing footage of that game, Joe? Do you know why? There were no cameras there. Why were there no cameras there? Because RT had one outside broadcast unit and was ready committed to covering show jumping at the Dublin Horror Show. So that's where Fair it enough. used to be. And relatively, re- <laughs> yeah, relatively recently, the only games that's pointed out in some of these pieces. Um, shown were all Ireland semi-finals and finals. Mm. So now, but now there's this thing that everybody, we want to see every game, you know, and we want extra highlights programs, and we want magazine programs, and I'm not sure the appetite is there that some people are think there is for all this stuff. Mm. You know, that people saying, oh, some people seem to effectively want a four-hour Sunday game in a Sunday night, so every game gets proper highlights, but. I think the highlights program, Kieran, is to fix that problem. Um, as in, RT are open about this that they're they're rugby and they don't have a League of Ireland highlights program, and they're against the head one gets gets mm. gets no eyes on it in their rugby one. And I think it's this is just to. I think everyone can admit that the Sunday game in the last couple of years, because of the explosion of matches, has just become almost unwatchable you just kind of just dip in you maybe record it and dip in to watch whatever you've missed and then you get out but there's because even there's more no games next year how do you make it watchable when there's so well, many games I presume games they'll just can't... deal with they'll go match of the day one match of the day two yeah and they'll just deal with it like that as in you, you, you spend a bit of time on what's the real news issues what's the main major issues in one programme and then the next but again you're right I don't know how this coverage this is, I don't see how this improves the coverage of Gaelic games in Ireland I'm, I'm not seeing it um, and the BBC thing wasn't an achievement or it wasn't a massive agreement. It hasn't been put forward as that. It was like RTE have got exclusive coverage, Sky are gone. And then BBC was the third thing. Well, that came well, in. well the other and BBC key, have always been but there. But the other key factor is GA Go. Which, yeah. you know, the GA say they'll expand that themselves and do their own streaming but they'll, uh, of games, but they'll, 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 they'll broaden it out with pundits and proper you know, presentation, etc. But I don't like the sound of that because. You know, it's City Hall in charge of broadcasting the games. Like, are they going to show, are they going to uh, get into anything that's controversial or contentious? You know, is it going to be incredibly safe and bland? Like, that's going to be a hard watch if it's the case. And the other thing is the the pricing structure. Like, as things stand, so many people pay for, say, Sky, BT Sport, they probably pay for Netflix, they might pay for Amazon, they might pay for Apple TV, Disney Plus on top of that. Are they going to pay for GA Go subscription on top of that? Mm. You know, it, it, that, that, that is a big question. And uh, So do they have a market? And yeah. it's extreme, it is doubtful whether there's a profitable market. Yeah, especially when so much of the coverage is around 
oh, these games are awful. <laughs> I mean, people are saying, oh, this is unwatchable. Okay, you're now trying to sell it and you've got a, t- a smaller and smaller window to sell fewer and fewer games. Which is so true though, isn't it? Until yeah. the quarters and the semis and the finals of the Gaelic Football Championship. Yeah. It's just unwatchable. It's just terrible stuff. Because even for GA Go to financially cover the 14 games which Sky are handing back, that's a serious cost in and of itself. Is it 70, yeah, because that's, uh, Mick Foley mentioned 60 people working on match days, yeah. you know. Uh, Times four. That adds up, you know. I think, and I think he mentions there uh, each. I each saw a figure there. Each was Sun- it? Sunday game highlight show is twenty five. Twenty five thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what I think a lot of people don't realize how expensive TV is. But, mm. but you know, uh, definitely true. But there is a model, and again, Sh- Shane McGrath writing about it in the Mail on Sunday says Alan Milton, the GEA's director of communications, told the podcast this week that the GEA were now moving into the space of content generators ourselves and broadcasters, and described it as a golden opportunity, as Alan Milton definitely should. But so they do have a model. You can go in a much much bigger market. You can look at the way the NBA took hold of things a while ago, and they went. Let's not just be the only content, but let's not just be our, again, let's not be City Hall. Let's give, let's spread the wealth to all YouTubers all over the world to come out and take our footage and take our coverage 10 seconds after games and edit it and chop it and put it up. And it, so they created a whole ecosystem by freeing it up. And then their app and their links, I'm not sure so much about the NFL, but the, the one over in uh, the NBA one, as far as interactive, and you can go in and buy games and you can go in and look at stuff and you get... I hate the word, but you get the word, you get very good, solid, constant content if, if from them and go into it. Like so, they do have models that they can scale down. They can look at and scale down and go, how do we, how do we do this? Yeah, but that's a massive global sport played at yes, a very high level. Yeah, you know, whereas this is a tiny minority sport in a tiny island at the edge of Europe, and it's large, often played at a very low level. Then we need to see you the know? business. Plan. So, how do you sell that? You yeah. know, when you. Uh, well, even to come back to Joe Bradley's piece, just to give listeners a sense of what he's saying. So he's effusive about BBC coverage, uh, all their presenters, he's big fans of them. Uh, BBC have a lot of advantages, no ads, conversation can flow. Uh, he's a big fan of Tommy Niblock and uh, pays huge credit as well to the head of sport, Neil Britton, who he says, I'll call Great Britain in future. And he says, um, of the Sky deal, this week that terrible wrong has been righted. It was a brilliant feeling to see the three heads of sport from TG Cahar, RTE and BBC together after the deal was announced. Three free-to-air channels will be our ambassadors going forward. So it's an outstanding deal in every way. It ensures that for the next five years, the games will once again belong to the people, not Rupert Murdoch. And can unlike Sky, with the BBC on board, the Sky truly is the limit. Can I point something out that's important? Because this is said all the time, but free-to-air. If you pay, you pay TV licence, which finances RTE, and TG Car, they're not free to air. If you're in the UK, you pay TV license for BBC. None of those channels are free to yeah, air. You point. know, it's uh, but does, this is pushed uh, all the time. What yeah. did you think of Sky's coverage? Though it never caught me, it never grabbed me in the, in all the years it was there. And I know there was like Jim McGuinness was on. And I would go to find out what he was saying on occasion, but um, it, but, uh, it but got I find lost. That, I felt I find in, that across Sky, sports you know, within and the and channels. I, I find that across a lot of sport now that is not grabbing me. And I think maybe there's too much of it and too much. And I said, like, obviously Virgin are an exception, like uh, Joe yeah, Malloy. What is going to do Joe Malloy They're going to start with Fermanagh Antrim, aren't they? They're going to launch their championship with Fermanagh Antrim or something like the that. The grand tradition. Yeah. yeah. yeah and it's, it's going to be the slow burn thing, which just simply just cannot work anymore. You, you know, know, and they, so a big part of, just curious for your thoughts, a big part of Joe Brawley's piece talks about the importance for the community in the north of BBC showing games and, you know, this only is as kind of a 1990s on phenomenon and he talks about how important it is for the community, which I absolutely accept and that's you know something that probably we don't think about all that often down here but on his point about this game potentially reaching an audience of up to 50, 60, 70 million and being on BBC Two and Gary Lineker he mentions with his 8 million Twitter followers or Daryl Breen with his 2.5 million followers I was kind of thinking like to what end though I never cared by the way that it was on an English TV I always mm. thought that was this, this weird red herring that made no real difference either way but when we're talking about it reaching all these eyeballs do we want the game to take off because it seems like we're contracting inter-county increasingly and we want the game to you know go back to club being at the heart of it we've shown it off to 60-70 million and a catching fire and more money sloshing around I would have thought is the opposite to what Joe Raleigh and others want so I can't Mm. work out why the excitement that it might be tweeted by Gary Lineker 
so that they say we want more of this or we want to have a London team and a professional team and where does it all go? Like, what's the big advantage? And it's completely of- fanciful that you would have 50, 60 million people watching it. Sure, you, you know, might get one. The, you know, if, you're, if you're very lucky, yeah. you know, like... The, you get one like out Back of in the day, Channel 4 used to show the GA. No, it's not nothing new that this has been shown and the numbers were always very small. But to what end? So yeah, say, what there's, end? say there's two million watching it. What do we do with that? Yeah. We're contracting the inter-county season. But yeah. Are they doing this on... Uh, okay. Alan Milton does describe it as a golden opportunity, but Sky said that they thought they were going to be get a new package, and they, they, that was their unfairness. Yeah, they were late in the day. They until did. a yeah. couple of days ago, yeah. they were thought they were going to have extend their deal. So again, this is this is the gap. This is the information we don't have. Yeah, but so they're not. This they they just they, they are packaging it now as we're going to move forward, but they really need to come out and explain to people how they're going to move forward and make it suitable to an Irish market or suitable to people to watch games on their phones or whatever. I don't think they know. I think they're sitting around over the last week saying, okay, this Sky thing has fallen through. Mm. Let's figure all this out. Yeah. Yeah, because 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 all all the word, you know, the word is that, you know, Sky did did expect something was going to happen. This has taken people by surprise. So it's not like this was a... I thought I planned it. So now you're kind of thinking in the hoof where we go with this. And Mick Foley mentions, because the way the season has been reconstructed, there's, there's unrest with some major sponsors. Mm. And I can understand that. And, and I think the TV deal will add to it as well, that things are going to get very fragmented and messy. And even if you, um, you know, there are all sorts of issues, like, you know, uh, like the way so many, say, provincial finals are tied into one weekend. So if you have a corporate box in Crow Park that you were paying a lot of money for, mm. you're suddenly not getting as much value or stretching it out over the, well, the know, over the summer. I, and everything. I, I think at the heart of this, Paul Flynn was in second captains during the week and he would obviously have a great feel for what's going on at GEA headquarters. And I, I Paul is wonderful because he'll uh, start his sentences with things like, in my opinion, or it would be my guess that, whereas I suspect he knows exactly what's going on. Because of his GPA background. Yes, he's yeah. been in there and he knows. So it was his... Uh, his sense yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that within the GEA, he said there are two. Divi- there's a, a division between that commercial side, the Peter McKenna side, that hard-nosed, really you know, keen sense of how we have to pay the bills and and you know we got to be realistic and bring in money, versus the Larry McCarthy, the club season's the most important thing. You know, let's get back to our roots and. So it's not aligned in there was the the sense I got from Paul Flynn at all. Yeah, and it's a conflict at all levels. Like you look at so many of the managers, uh, the new managers that are coming into the top teams like uh, Colm O'Rourke in Meath, uh, Paddy Carr in Donegal and then Jack O'Connor won the all out. They're retired teachers. So it's effectively become a full-time job that people in retirement are taking. Mickey Hart was a retired teacher. Quite a few of the managers are effectively full-time and uh, how sustainable is that? Well, true. Also, the cover- RT's coverage uh, under Declan McBennett is going to be fascinating because he has, uh, they have to rebuild. They have to rebuild their entire, like who's left on the football panels, their punter side? It's Sean Cavanaugh and Kieran Whelan. The rest mm. are gone. Mm. The, um, now, the obvious thing is there's a lot of talent leave that are out, mm. of, out of a gig in Sky. So yeah. Jim McGuinness always jumps off the page for me if he doesn't end up with a soccer job. Yeah, James Horn's back in the market. Mm. Um, Mick Foley does just make the simple point and I don't know if there's going to be good, bad or indifferent for the viewers next year or how it's all going to work out at this stage to be honest but he says on the service at least the GA appear to have shrunk everything back from a TV point of view precisely when the Intercounty Championships are about to expand in an unprecedented way that's the only thing I can kind of see is that Control. there are going to be more games and it's all in one place that really doesn't have the facilities I suppose to broadcast yeah. well, them all well, and that's you can where see, you know you what's GA coming down go. the tracks you can know you know that next June May June there's going to be outrage that there'll be some big game that it could be you know whatever carry against Galway whatever you know whatever way the yeah. you know, things are, are pan out and people saying it's not on TV or it's on this app that I've never heard of called GA Go or mm. you know how do I watch this game so <laughs> there are going to be big games that will be marginalised yeah. Mick makes the point you made as well he said GA Go We'll need, as well as actually just showing these games with more than... Because I think the production values in a lot of GEA Go games are tight enough. Mm. It's just a camera or two. So they're going to have to obviously fork out for production values. But he says as well, they'll need to exhibit proper journalistic and editorial independence despite being an official channel of the GEA. If the coverage starts flip-flopping on the first 30-man brawl they encounter, it won't be long losing credibility in customers. So there well, is Or do you well. should go straight at that and they should get the Director General of the GEA on at their next show and put all these questions to him yeah. and just, just clear it all up, you know. 
investigate themselves, investigate the association. That's uh, proper journalism. On the um, the highlight show or a magazine show, so in the Mail on Sunday, page 62, uh, Michael Dignan is talking about a midweek second TV show, in effect, a, a magazine show. Nobody watches them. Well, he's the on the record well, saying. That's, he, a, that's, he, that's he interesting Saturday, you say because nobody ever mentioned the amount of times I hear people say we need a magazine show. Is on the record saying we don't have a League of Ireland show because we can't get eyes on it. Okay. Yeah, Against they never the head, did the numbers, the GA magazine shows well, before. So why do people keep bringing this up? I don't up? know. Well, Michael Dygan makes the argument that people want to see matches and highlights, but I think we do need that Gerlock Nan, Joe Brawley element as well, which Irish people love. I just feel there seems to be a race to be like Sky for analysis, but most of the entertainment in Sky is through the Roy Keynes of the world. That's what people tune in for. Big time. Yeah. While we went through a phase of all arrows and pointing, and there's nothing <laughs> wrong with a bit of that. I understand how the game works and changes. I'm not old school. You also need that human interaction. Irish people in particular, I think, love that debate and that bit of wildness every now and again. So if the midweek show had Lochnan, Brawley, these type of brilliant personas who can just be let loose for an hour around a table. Don't even show a clip oh, if they don't want to. Create your own little hole in the, take your own little place in the market on a Thursday night or whatever yeah. and just can own it. Yeah, yeah. well you need people, but you need new Lutnans and, and yeah. Joe Brawley's. Like they've been Fair. around the block a long time and you need, you know, you can't rely on the same person. Like maybe Philly McMahon it's an option, like Philly's Collins Paul would be Flynn, very good. Philly yeah. McMahon, just a, three dubs maybe would be good, wouldn't it? Ah, uh, look, I'd bring Lachnan and Brawley back for a couple of years, lads. <laughs> I mean, there's life there, I think, no? Well, Lachnan is a star columnist, so... Well, indeed. I have a good indeed. time for Jerry. But, I mean, that that's the only way to make the magazine show fire. If the magazine show is like yeah. going out and getting some platitudes from a current player to be really good on TV pitch. you know what I mean uh, if you if you do TV a lot if you know if you take a break from it or if you're not on it all the time if yeah. you've been doing it for years you're just nowhere near up to the standard and again that feeds into the, the Lachnan and Brawley say what you like about them say what your problems are but these guys are pros at it for years and years and years so yeah. they can actually be themselves and express and be whatever part of themselves they want to show quite easily and get it across yeah and it's set a, agendas and have debates and, all, and arguments don't be spending a year tra- breaking people in again now you know so I don't know I mean it's all up in the air so what do we think as a as a conclusion is the viewer going to be happier or unhappier next year or notice any grand difference I think they'll be unhappier because there's more games and they're not going to see as much as they want okay. yeah the season will be over before they know it and well, they'll be back at their club matches What's a fair price for GAA go for, say, this summer season? Well, I think that's very hard to gauge because, and you have to factor in the amount of subscriptions people have already. So it's very... Uh, to get people to buy an extra one, I think it's mm. it's difficult now. It's very difficult. Yeah, and I don't know. The, the, you got to go with... Um, yeah, so what do you pay for uh, Netflix, yeah? So Netflix is more value because it, everyone in the family can watch different things and if you might get bored of it, but the other people watching it. So that... That's has, can't be that price. Mm. So whatever that is, nine ninety euro a month, a month yeah. has to be half that because yeah. you're you're not you're not feeding. But you can pay fifteen euro a game and yeah. Uh, the other GA yeah, the, and the important well, that's there's an important point as well, Joe, is that RT will probably have first pick. I would be pretty certain. So you're getting the Sky games. You could get the run. Yeah, the run to the litter. Can and I get you, are you going to pay in or you know, Saudi Arabia or wherever I am working or teaching? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's important. I guess maybe how it works is that. If Kildare are playing Wicklow, I appreciate that you two gents not, might not be that keen. But if I want to watch Kildare play, I might pay the X euro for, for, for that one game. I can watch it in my sister's house. <laughs> can you? The no, it's in it's in St. Connellts. Well then, Newbridge uh, or But maybe county, maybe people will play, pay to see their own county play a game, and then a bit like the club championship. No one cares if it's not my club involved. No one cares if Kildare and Wicklow play in the first round of Leinster. They can live without seeing it. Maybe that's how. It'll, Work that you just you pay for your. I would own go, we'll go with Wicklow just for uh, McConville. That's, for, that's, <laughs> well, that's true. It's got jazzier for, for good or bad. You twenty know. euro, twenty euro. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how it works. Nobody out. Nobody knows, including the GA and RTE. Yeah, it, it feels a bit to, like that. that sort of feels yeah. Like, yeah. And the November internationals are approaching, and there are various pieces looking ahead to Conor Murray's one hundredth appearance for Ireland. I thought. Um, he was in a few of the papers and, for instance, Peter O'Reilly here on page 12 of the Sunday Times makes the, I think, not incorrect point that he's become a touch uh, less cherished these days. Mm-hmm. Murray, not as cherished as he universally, as universally as he should be. It's as if he suffers by comparison with the player he once was. And he may, you know, he says the player set impossibly high standards when World <laughs> Rugby announced their international 15 team of the decade... 
Murray, one of just four Northern Hemisphere players included, along with Brian O'Driscoll, Sergio Parisi and George North. Uh, we remember him as the sniper who terrorised pillar defenders, etc. Although he does say in the course of his last 29 caps, he scored just one try. That neck shoulder injury he sustained in 18 appears to have blunted the attacking edge and that confidence. Murray's super skill became the less than sexy box kick, dreaded by opposing uh, wingers, but eventually by spectators also. And he talks later on in the piece about how he's really tr- focusing and trying to play to tempo and, you know, he absolutely backs his uh, skill set. But um, as he nears 100, I think unfortunately for him, he's very associated with the box kick and almost that older style of our Irish play, which is unfortunate because his his overall body work is utterly exceptional. Mm, I think a, a little bit past in about five, ten years, we'll still see, we'll look back and we'll see Conor Murray, Keane Healy, the best loose head and the best scrum half to ever play for Ireland. But now they're in a point in their careers where they're the second best in 2022 in those two positions. Yeah, and that is not their, like that is an indictment of of rugby that they haven't been passed out. Um, that the two of them are still the second best players in their positions. Like clearly, you know, like Keane Healy, is Craig Casey closing the gap on Murray because of well, the tempo. Like okay, the, the, yes, he sh- I, I I thought he would have passed him out by now, but you know, you, you got to put faith in the monster coaching setup that they know what they're doing mm. and that they, they still think that he's not ready to pass him out in the big games um, Craig Casey is something that the Irish camp have kept close to them for a long long time because they see him as the ideal uh, foil for the next guy in for James and Gibson Park in style wise like, as soon as James and Gibson Park became a resident in Ireland the Irish coaching ticket under Andy Farrell went to push him in as their nine yeah. and just Conor Murray to his enormous credit, has hung on in there as the backup guy, uh, who is, again, still not a world-class player, I don't know anymore, I haven't seen that evidence in the last year or two, but still a, still clearly second-best scrum half in Ireland. Mm. But Gibson Park is essential. Now, Murray gets, gets a, a fair enough to him, he gets annoyed when it's put to him that you're not the guy who's able to play with tempo, and he, look, he comes dead back at, um, I think it was in the mail on Sunday, actually, when Rory... Uh, yeah, he comes back and says, "No, like I, I can do that. I can play that game. I can play that high tempo, quick game." Yeah, but just the, the facts don't. The, the, our eyes don't lie. Like James and Gibson Park is the best in the country at it, and he was the best in the country at it when he was in New Zealand on the cusp of me, me, winning an All Black cap, but came up here to, for a better career, for a pr- more prolonged career. And he's been. He it was it was quite interesting to watch James and Gibson Park because he couldn't get past Luke McGrath at Leinster and then he became Irish qualified and he became the best scrum half in Ireland, and it was it was clear to see if you watched him play and if you play a certain way he is the man. It's yeah. just so fast and his ability to his head swiveling is the thing you should watch when he goes down, and he's made his decision before he's crouched to go near the ball, um, and it's it's absolutely key to what Ireland are trying to do that that pace away from the thing and we've been saying this for years but they've really nailed it down and he is. He's the key man in that. So um, yeah, yeah. See, the, Sun- the Sunday boys are trying out Murray. Good, good story this week. But I, I'd, I'd be surprised if he if he hangs on in there in the next couple of years on the bench. There are various pieces looking ahead to how Ireland might beat South Africa. Neil Francis, Bernard Jackman, along similar lines. Um, Neil Francis saying there is a perception every time it really matters. Sides such as England, France, South Africa bring a, a vengeful game of forward power, and Ireland can't deal with it. And uh, he says Ireland must manage the physical punishment as any side must if they are to be called the best in the world. Bernard Jackman saying it looks like our current style of play is suited to avoiding the heavy hits and confrontational strength of South Africa with their defence is highly aggressive and will test our attack in a manner not experienced previously. So that's all to look forward to next Saturday. Yeah, could, could I just point something out here? Yeah. I don't know if I ran it by beforehand, Joe, but... No, no. Um, Peter O'Reilly um, decided to try and get an interview with Felix Jones, which is a good angle ahead of this game because uh, you know, their, their he's, a, he's a key factor, he's a key figure in the Springboks coaching staff. Uh, he's only Irishman in possession of a Rugby World Cup winner's medal. Mm. He actually played against some of the current Springboks with Ireland. But it just kind of t- uh, tells you, like like the Murray quotes are across the line, so it was clearly a grouped interview, you know, and the way things now have become quite homogenised. But, you know, Peter O'Reilly writes... Uh, you know, just talking about where New Zealand are at the moment, he said, clearly it would be interesting to get Jones's take on all of this. But Zena wasn't keen on this line of questioning. That's Zena Isaacs van Tonder, SA Rugby's media manager. Zena had to pass the interview in the first place. She even requested that I provide an outline of the interview's subject matter and then emailed to let me know that she would be in on the call and to warn me away from any, quote, game build-up questions, close quote. 
Jones doesn't crave media attention, but he's bright, well-spoken, cooperative. However, when I broached the style issue, Zena jumped in to say that it would be unfair to ask the Springboks attack coach about how they attack. And then finishes up with, as soon as I mention next year's World Cup, when Ireland and South Africa meet in the pool phase, Zena butts in again to tell me my time is up. Jones has a fascinating story to tell. Hopefully he'll be allowed to tell it one day. Mm. And it's, I remember somebody telling me years ago that if you're bored writing something, people will be bored reading it. And there are people within sport who are determined to make the job boring for you. And that leads to boring articles a lot of the time. But it's, it's a fair play for Peter O'Reilly for writing down what, you know, that kind of nonsense that you can't ask an attack coach about, about the how they attack. I wonder if Zena got involved. Rossi Erasmus wrote his, col- his column in the Mail on Sunday uh, this week as well. I wonder if she had any input or in trying to keep him under wraps. Well, good luck with that. Um, he said one thing. He goes, uh, he goes when he was talking about Ireland, he, obviously he mentioned coming back and Anthony Foley and uh, that experience mm. and all that and his his bond with Munster and all that. But um, he said rugby in Ireland is like precision farming. They have more or less two hundred professionals, but they get the best out of them. They're not number one. They're not number in the world. And that's that's our first test match, and it's going to be a tough six game tour. So there's Rassi, who still denies in his column releasing that video for his one year ban. But however, you picked out Brennan Fanning, Gav, on page three of the Sunday Independence. Dave Newsafor made his presentation during the week to journalists about how things are going David Newsafor being the RFU performance director spoke for 42 minutes and 5 seconds Brennan timed it and noted that he didn't even sip his glass of water he said try that at home Uh, no blood was spilled no infrastructure was dismantled it was clinical and uh, highly impressive and in effect you know he says David Newsafor was naturally it it was a party political broadcast delivered straight from head office as you would expect but he did to be fair he did note well Ireland are the number one team in the world we are sitting in a a comfy corporate box in a stadium in which the IRFU owes no money two English premiership clubs have just gone to the wall you'd be delusional not to appreciate the importance of all this notwithstanding the self-interested source taking us through the highlights reel on it goes and I think the um, you know it talks about the sevens and uh, you know that's a real bullseye for David Nusifor this was something he wrote in on 2014 to make the Olympic Games and have uh, respectability and, and membership in the on the seven circuits. So that's another box ticked. Uh, you honed in on a point Brennan Fanning made about the lack of diversity. Hmm. Uh, so Brennan says, our reliance on privately educated skinny white guys is likely to keep us away from the dream of getting to the last four of next year's uh, World Cup, I think was the, the point you sent through. Well, that paragraph by Brennan is a piece that I wrote after the 2015 World Cup, after the 2019 World Cup, and it still hasn't changed enough. Um, David Nusifor, I've sat in on these um, these gatherings a couple of times over the years, and uh, he sits there and he gives his report, and usually, 2019 was a rough one for him, but uh, usually he can give these reports off the back of, like at the moment, he's given one off the back of a series win in New Zealand. He is Teflon. It's just that. Uh, so he can sit there, he'll give his report. He'll and, take, and, and presumably that is a job mostly well done then? Like yeah, the general state of things. They is won good. a test series in New Zealand. He's untouchable, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but even the, beyond that, things are in reasonable yeah, shape. Yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're 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 they balance the books in there. They always have. He's um he's doubled the RFU have doubled down, treble down, quadruple down with this man, and now he's saying he's going in I think twenty twenty four. Yeah. Um. He uh, what he does is though after he gives those presentations, he sits there and he looks around at all the journalists and he goes, "Who's got my number? You know, come on." Take, who's better than me here? Who can who can poke holes? And when you do get him at an angle, which has always been consistently been the women's game, for for ages he was like, oh, sorry, that's the amateur side of the house, so that's not on me. Uh, or and, and he did try and revolutionise the AIL, the men's AIL, and they didn't let him do it. And so he has tried to do all these things, but just on the point of um, like if they look, if the IRFU look really closely, they will see see a. If, the op- if people looking to break apart Irish rugby, they will see there is one thing that it's all put in on the boys' schools in Blackrock, Clongos, St. Michael's. That's it. They build, the majority of the talent is coming from there, you know, and then the other, the smaller secondary schools. And it's not, it's not, it hasn't changed at all. And it really hasn't. And they're not even, those schools are not, bring, are not diversifying either, you know. They're not bringing in kids from uh, poor areas. They do a small bit, but they're not doing it at a level that you would see in American sports or in British sports where you get to end up in these schools on sports scholarships. That's that's not happening at a level that is would be deemed, that everyone could say, look, we are diversifying. Um, they have, it's a reliance that means um, 
again, if you look around, let's, let's look at the Irish football team, right? Gavin Bazunu, Andrew Obamadeli, Adam Ida, uh, Chidozi Ogbeni. These are guys who've come through and they're all from Nigerian parentage, either both parents or, or their dads. And they've come through and they've added a level of physicality and athleticism to Irish football that we wouldn't be able to do without in, going forward. That you, you just literally, in a, in a world that's diverse and has different shapes and sizes and people playing for their national teams, you can't take the progress, you can't take the next step unless your society, unless your, your international sports teams, your Ireland sports teams look like your society. And the IRFU, who have done a brilliant job of balancing the books, a brilliant job of remaining, they're the number one team in the world, mm. to be fair to them. But uh, I, I'd i bet a lot of money on them not getting out of a quarterfinal at this year's World Cup or the next one. Because they will, and I, but I'd also say that they'll probably win Grand Slams and they'll probably go back into profit in the next couple of years. Yeah. So why should they, is their but, attitude. But how on the one hand can we talk about um, the reliance on privately educated skinny white guys is likely to keep us away from the dream of getting to the last four of the next World Cup. I mean, the skinny white guys, to use the phrase, do have Ireland number one in the world fresh off a test win in New Zealand. Is it... So a, they had that four years ago as well, is, though. Is, is it a little um, too small a sample size to just hone in on one fortnight every four years and say, well, that's, you know, throw a baby out with bat water, it's not working. Like, it, But every other country hones in on that fortnight every four years. But that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. James Ryan is a brilliant rugby player and I remember him after the uh, getting after got tanned by New Zealand in the World Cup quarter final yeah. in 2019 he was sent into the mix zone kid sent into the mix zone best player that Ireland had at that time mm. sent into the mix zone and was asked about um, how, how can you be better how can you make this next step and he, he was just like we will be better what we're doing now we're, we're on a we're on a, a chart now we're going to have the right coaches in place we're going to be better and all that and they, they won't be better because it'll it's it's still from this tiny little playing pool, mm. which are producing unbelievable professionals like a Hugo Keenan's, like James, like Caelan Doris and all that. Yeah. But until we, if you, like, it's it's very simple. Like the IRFU have never gone into West Dublin or into Tala, like the FAI do. And then naturally people want to play football more than they want to play rugby, so that's fair enough. But they've never gone in properly. Like, you know, I remember mm. Barnhall was a big thing after Trevor Brennan. Mm. And you're thinking, going, go there now, that's it now. That's, you've, got a, you've got your foot in the door. Yeah. And it didn't happen. The Midlands is another one that's just like Sean O'Brien, go there, go in there now. You've got your foot in the door. Invest. Invest in, and I'm not talking about, because the players are there because they're all playing GAA. You, you, all you have to do is invest in coaching. Right. If your, coach, if your coaching is better at under nines, then, for example, if, if Black Rock's coaching is better than Kilma Cudd's, you won't, you'll have the thousands of the kids from Kilma Cudd will go to Black Rock because they'll see that there's a professional route here, you mm. know? Because mm. uh, it's funny, um, it just brings up a memory for me. In another life, I was sports editor of the Star, and I remember we came up with the idea of doing a three-part series on um, rugby's grass at grassroots, but looking at uh, the inroads or lack of inroads in making it work in class areas. So there's a lot of focus on West Dublin. You know, we looked at Barnhall, we looked at Tallinn, looked at various other areas. And, you know, and looking at the efforts to bring migrant communities in as well. Because if you look across Irish sport, like between boxing, athletics, soccer, you know, across the board, uh, rowing, that uh, a lot of the top performers now are, are, are sons and daughters of immigrants. You know, the most impressive coach in Irish rugby is an immigrant, Zorantia, uh, from Georgia. And uh, what strikes me is that, that three-part series we did was in February 1998, which will be 25 years next February. Mm. And a lot of the issues we're talking about then are still haven't been resolved. You know, the playing base has still largely be, been the same at the national team level. I know people from the IRFU will come at you and give you lots of stats and say we've improved here and we've done this and does that. But largely, uh, they haven't made the inward you would expect after another 25 years of professionalism. Mm. Yeah, so it's Given great. the game's popularity, Even given the numbers you do, like we talked about this before, um, like if you look at website numbers, YouTube numbers, etc., rugby is hugely popular, but it's not. It hasn't in participation terms. The participant rate, not it hasn't. It's increasing, but not at the level you would expect. I yes. don't think. I did a piece with Trevor Hogan, who who is the chief talent scout for for Leinster Rugby. Yeah, and he talked about how he had a sixteen-year-old kid from Crumlin who also had to have a job, who worked in a bar as well, and the cost of travel from Crumlin was too much for him because he was trying to get, finish shifts, get on a bike, whatever. Right. While all the other kids have, I'm 
sorry for saying it's a bit harsh, it's a bit unfair, but they're just driving around in the backseat of Land Rovers most of their lives because they're getting because that's they're from that socio-economic background. Mm. So you know it's it's, it's that, a that's severe a, disadvantage. Well, that's the, the sense I have as well. Even for the club player, the likes of O'Brien coming through, <coughs> such a disadvantage because it does seem everything you hear. I mean, I didn't go to a private school. I don't know anyone really who's in one currently. But what you do hear through the grapevine is effectively they're training like full-time athletes or like they're at a Premier League soccer academy almost. Like there's weight sessions and there's video sessions. and there's, From age 14. There's some kind of training and almost from, late, from age 11 they're looking forward to being age 14 so yeah. they can become professionals. So, so if, you're, if you're in this hothouse and you're surrounded by others who are, you know, equally uh, training that much, the, the, the rate of development is so accelerated versus say you're in Sean O'Brien's shoes and you might be training Tuesday, Thursday in a match on Saturday. You've got to be really exceptional to when you're 18, 19 to compare favourably with year after year after year after year of the private school guys coming yeah. out. You know? So that's a whole other area of disadvantage. I don't, and I don't know how the IRFU compete with that on, on club level. Maybe they have to just do their best to identify the exceptions, but it's very difficult to, to spot the eleven-year-old who's going to be the next Sean O'Brien. They do, you know? and they've got a lot of joy at a nice rugby club and places like yeah. that. But if you if you switch it onto, onto the women's side, but when and they're they're putting it to New Sephora again because we're when they don't have the advantages that the, the boys their age are coming through, and there's a ten the, the pay diversity the, the cut is they, the men get paid ten times more than the women are about to be offered now. Yeah, so it's three hundred grand contracts versus thirty grand contracts, which a lot of them just are laughing at and going, "No, I'm going to stay in college, or I'm going to stay in my current job, and I'm going to become I'm a remain a part time player, and you can pay me per diems because why would I take that up? Okay, it would destroy my career. Because I thought it was reported that twenty seven had accepted. And eight had rejected. Yeah, but look at the eight. Are, Rory O'Connor actually uh, published the eight names, and they're some of the top players. You know who are in, in the middle of their careers already, or they're in England playing, where they're getting paid over there. Again, small amount, but mm. it just you have to train at Abbottstown. Like so, mostly if you're getting paid, it's fifteen grand to thirty grand as well, and you're, you're, a lot of that money would pretty much go in wherever you're living near Abbottstown or your. So it wasn't transport. accommodation included. Not that I saw, no, not that I heard of, but. Um, he, it, Nusifor said an interesting thing about this. Mm. He, he goes when he was asked about you know you're, you, we, we talk about equality and all that, and you're now for years he wouldn't touch the women's game. But he, he said uh, he goes I'm not sure how to answer that when he was asked about the disparity um, and the message it sends. He goes we all understand the mod- model. We're started from nothing and th- the game's still being built. He's talking about women's rugby, right? Now I was in Marcusis when Ireland beat the Black Ferns in 2014, and so was he. Yeah, yeah. So when Ireland reached the World Cup semi-final, he was the demand running Irish rugby. He was the chief and he was in the job a year or he was six months a year, can't remember which. But to say we're starting from nothing is just, <laughs> is, is a very interesting way to look at it. Mm-hmm. We're starting from nothing because we've been forced to start bringing, start stopping just a male-orientated sporting organisation. And again, I think I said this a year ago when we were talking, and we're talking about a professional Australian who was brought in to run Irish rugby and he is the front. And again, for example, there he's getting a bit of a backlash from how he's presented his stuff. This will last two days, and then we'll, we'll roll into November. Might beat the Springboks and everything. The narrative goes away. Um, I felt a year ago that the women's game will never recover in Ireland, and I think there's going to be a vibrant club game because of where we are now. Because I actually went up and watched one there recently, and it was it was brilliant. It was it's lopsided and all that, and the structures are terrible. But uh, I think we will have a good, vibrant amateur game. But I, I really struggle to see how we can come back even from now where they're at. Like there's a World Cup going on at the moment and we have, it's not, there's not a word of it in any no. of these newspapers. There's not a, it's not on any of our radio stations, any of our TV. No young girls are seeing rugby right now. You know, I think, I think RT are showing the World Cup final, which again, I don't even know when it's on. It's happening right now. We know nothing no. about it. No. And we, they, I, I personally think that the IRFU, they killed it off in between, they killed off women's rugby in this country and I don't think we should ever let anyone forget that they did that. They did it between 2013, 2014. They were gifted these brilliant teams and they let it die on the vine. And it's... Mm. 15, certainly. 7s. 15s. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, they're, they're building something now, but I really hope I'm proved wrong in the next couple of years. I hope we see uh, something happen that actually looks like we're going to have a professional well, I think, team. To be fair, like, given the fact, certainly Virgin are shown and RTE are shown the Six Nations every single game, Women's Six Nations standalone for the next three years and I presume there'll be a deal beyond that. They can't afford Ireland getting hammered in these games on live national television. People won't stand for it. And that, like this year just gone was bad. Wales, who suddenly turned professional in January, beat Ireland in the opening game, the RDS, big crowd, sunshine. 
Uh, Ireland were staring at the wooden spoon, but for a last minute kick in Belfast. And it's no coincidence that here we are this same calendar year and finally professional contracts are being dished out because they know Wales have had a year of being professional. These professional contracts aren't good enough. I, I, again, I, I yeah, should the, say the senior coach and ticket of Graham McWilliams, I think Neve Briggs is still involved. Uh, uh, John McKeith, who coached Fiji, has been brought in on a full-time job. These are positives and I, I have no doubt that Greg Williams will put out a competitive team at yeah. the Six Nations. He's had a year of he's a year on, in the job now and he's a very good coach. He should have been the head coach in 2014, 15, not Tom Tierney. Yeah. And again, I, like that was just so obvious back then and they let him away to go coaching in America mm. and now they have him in the job but so much time, so much key time as the, the switch to professionalism is happening. totally different. Uh, we're, we're so it's far behind. in various uh, papers so Jim O'Connor has written an autobiography, Why Not a Warrior, uh, Camogie's Most Decorated Player, tackles the question of sexuality and society in, in sport with typical honesty and courage, says the Sunday Independent. So uh, these are extracts from a book, pages 18, 19 of this Sunday Independent, like I said, and there's other pieces in different papers. She's been interviewed, I think, in the Mail on Sunday as well. And so some of the, in, uh, the extracts cover, for instance, her relationship with her wife, Aoife, Eva, uh, and this is a couple of years ago, I'd presume now. Eva's not out. I never officially came out. Straight people would never have to confirm their heterosexuality, and I just never stood up and announced to the world my name is Jem O'Connor and I'm gay. But at the same time, my sexuality has been known to friends and family since I was 17. Uh, we keep our relationship a secret for a while until she's ready to unveil that part of herself to others. As time goes on, we just allow people to put two and two together and figure out the easy question. You don't necessarily have to announce how we're together. We just allow word to spread. Sometimes I do find myself resenting that a bit, the pressure to verify a same-sex relationship. If I was straight, I wouldn't have to do this. I just don't understand the obsession that people have about who other people get to spend their time with or who they share their life with. That's more than just an Irish issue. It's a human one too. Uh, she says later on, it's funny watching people try not to be awkward about it and doing their absolute best to show you how progressive they are. We meet people in the local parish and they'd be going, that's Gemma now and her partner. Uh, oh, this is my partner. Don't say girlfriend. And she laughs about that with her friends. Uh, talks about just the difficulties in day-to-day life, which, you know, are still grim, really. One of my uncles on my mother's side is gay. He had his ear bitten off in a nightclub basically for being gay. On another night out, I'm outside a bar when two lads roar out a comment from across the road. Not happy with what they've said, I decide to chase after them. One of them takes off thinking I won't catch up and I surprise them when I do. I trip one of them mid-chase. He falls straight into the middle of the road just as a car is passing. I can't tolerate the offence, but I also can't stop myself from thinking what would have happened if he was struck by the car. Her advice to younger people or people carrying the secret, not necessarily younger, carrying it around like a horrible secret is far more damaging to your mental health. It's exhausting to live in fear, worrying that someday somebody might figure you out every day. That can provoke people to have suicidal ideations, depression and anxiety. I know it's not easy, but you must do all you can to avoid creating a dangerous environment for yourself and have some faith as well. You might get a good response from friends and family when you open up about something like this. But either way, you're unburdening yourself with something that your family should know. Take that weight off your shoulders. So, um... You know, it's very kind of compelling uh, piece and and I think we would all be guilty of assuming that Ireland is very grown up now and, and life is fairly smooth for uh, gay people or non-heterosexual people and then you read Jim O'Connor talking about still having things shouted at her from across the road by two lads. So uh, that's, what I guess, why these pieces remain very, very important. Yeah, and it's... Um I also find it interesting that um, there's a lot more out uh, competitors in women's sport than men's sport. Mm. Far more, you know, like across uh, Irish women's team, uh, teams uh, in camogie, ladies football, soccer, rugby, etc. You know, there's so many that have been out and talked about their sexuality and, you know, it'd be no big deal. But, you know, you look at, uh, I think there's, that men still find it harder that there is, you know, that as, as Gemma writes about that GA pub culture that is quite toxic it's not just a GA thing yeah. but you know you do um, you know like like if, I know you know, gay people are regularly attacked in the streets of Dublin still mm. you know and as men more than women like women would get abused as well but it's still not a, a particularly welcoming country you know it's improved definitely and it's funny uh, it's a small thing but I'd often look through the local papers and you'd see Deb's photos of whatever school uh, coming up and you scan through them and often they see lesbian couples 
in the photos at school. But you very rarely see uh, two men, a gay, a gay man. And I think there's, it's, it's harder for young men to come out still in this country. Yeah, you're dead right. And I'm writing away about the, for Qatar, I'm writing away about this, this exact point for our World Cup magazine. Um, and uh, as far as I can tell, there's two openly gay professional male football players in a planet of 7.8 billion people. Gary Lineker spoke recently about how he knows there's a Premier League couple that are tempted to come out and uh, they, 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 it might happen during the World Cup. So is that, uh, just on your point about Dublin, it's right, you, in Dublin City you can be, you can and it does still happen, you can be attacked. But I, I, I've moved out, I've lived in the city for 10 years and just moved out last year and the difference between 10 years ago and now it, this is a, this is a it's a, it's a welcoming city to uh, people from the LGBTQ plus community. It, it really is, yeah. and it has been since we planted a flag with with, with um, same sex marriage. Uh, what is it now? About four years ago. Mm. Uh, it, it, it it we have making great strides, but the whole world's focus now turns to a country next month that uh, you can get hundred lashes and seven years in prison for having a same sex relations. Yet it's okay to be gay in Qatar for four weeks between mid-November and, and mid-December. Is it? Not if James Cleverly has his way. Uh, yeah, sorry, I don't know what that is. That was the UK Foreign Secretary. Oh, I saw his quote. Have a bit of compromise with, the, you know, with the host nation. In yeah, a, but in, the, CEO, in a, in a, the CEO of the World Cup has said the same thing. He, he was like, but we don't, what he actually said was, he goes, we don't show public signs of affection. So yeah. straight people have to be careful as well. You know, there's no hugging. And they still, they're still holding their stance over. You take your top off, we're going to throw you out of the stadium. That's still, that's still a rule. They, they're pushing back against this at the moment. Mm. So tops off and you're gone, right, from the stadium. You will be physically removed. That's going to cause a riot, obviously, if, that's, if they don't get, Enforced, don't yeah. get that through. There'll be, there'll be roughly of, a thousand footballers in uh, Qatar. And I would love to, you know, I'd love to see somebody boycott it. Like somebody have the guts to do a Tommy Smith, John Carlos mm. and make a stand and say, this is not worthwhile. I'd love to go to World Cup, but I don't want to legitimise this regime. This should not happen. Mm. It's a lot to put on people's shoulders, but they, they suffer greatly for what they did. You know what I mean? In the, yeah, yeah. In the immediate absolutely. No, I interviewed well. Tommy Smith a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I was um, thinking, so the Australian team released that video during the week. Which was very good, yeah. Yeah, and I, but I did hear conversations about it and someone was saying, well, if you really want to do something, boycott it, you know, was one of the common refrains back to it. I would say if you're in that position, you feel a, a real sense of the jersey being bigger than you and it's not your place as an individual to turn around to your country and say, well, I'm not representing you at this as a team. Like, I, I would think if you're a team in a room saying, well, will we boycott it or will we do the video? I would think you would say, well, we like... We're, we're above our station to boycott it boycott on behalf of work, But that's been the case with any stance that has ever been made in sport. Like when David Hickey wears a shirt with Cuba blockade when he's introduced a civil jubilee, that would have been seen as you don't do something yeah. like that, but he did it. Mm. Tommy Smith and John Carlos did it. Colin Ka- Kaepernick did it. Yeah. You, you Colin know, Kaepernick's uh, career was as, utterly as, dest- destroyed by what he did. As individuals, I feel you can do it. I, I feel you could say to the, your Australian teammates, I'm not going to this World Cup and take a stance as an individual. For the Australian team to pull out, I feel they would find that almost like they don't have the right to do that, to turn around to their country it and do that. It would need to be a Germany or it need to be a bigger nation to, to have any kind of lasting impact, I feel. Um, oh, geez, I think if any team pulled out, it would be big. Yeah. I just feel it must be hard for a team to turn around to the country and say, we've decided, us 20 have decided that we know best and we're not representing you. I do think an individual could definitely say, yeah. not going. Well, like, I could never we... see a team doing it, but I think uh, because, given the, the amount of players there, I'm actually surprised that no individual mm. has stood up and said, no, it's not worth it. Okay, well, but let's, let's say this is, we're now in May 1990 and we're about to go to our first ever World Cup, but it happens to be in Doha. Yeah. Would you be happy if the Ireland team did this, took this stance? That's, that's the point I'm trying to get at, yeah. To, to, to quen, quen, quench all that national excitement, yeah. yeah it's well, a big thing you to know, do. That's just not going to happen, you know. Mm. Like, I know I wouldn't want to see that happen and yet I, I'm... I'm delved in as deep as I possibly can into the way Qatari people are treating homosexuals. And the, you know, the funny thing is the moment, it's okay, it, it is like socially acceptable to be gay or trans in Doha at the moment. It's something that they're kind of encouraging and there's people appearing. And there's a lot of refugees, a lot of exiles who are in America or wherever who had to leave Qatar because they're, uh, because they're gay. 
and they're saying this is state sponsored <laughs> people are this is not real like what's happening here yeah. these are people who are connected to the royal family who've been told to go, you little group here can you can be gay for a couple of weeks now and then the World Cup will come we'll let people see this and then we'll move on okay. it's insidious okay. to be honest but we'll I'm glad Ireland didn't qualify I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't like to see an Ireland team in, a team in Qatar mm. I don't think it's worth it you know you look at uh, what Stephen Kenny has written and said over the years on various human rights issues, I don't think it would sit comfortably with him. But he would he would take his team obviously, and he would, would want the team to do the best. And he's going out there to watch matches. Yeah, but I think you are legitimizing the regime, uh, or, you know, you are by covering. And like I feel very compromised because I probably have to write it. That's you know, as part of the job, I probably have to write about it. And I don't want to write about it as a football event. I want to write about it as as a toxic thing that should never have been allowed to happen and it's, probably, it's, it's the worst thing to happen to sports since the 1936 Olympics. Yeah, there's no doubt about it but at the same time uh, what's going to happen next summer in Australia in those three Australian cities when, the, when Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan lead the team onto the pitch will change the lives of people like it changed my life when I watched Euro 88 and Italia 90. That will happen. So... You get into why sports it, washing works, why people do sports washing, you know, because, uh, because you it will work. You, you can't know? even define it. it does, the word doesn't even exist grammatically, you know, yeah. it does work. Yeah, yeah, it completely works. It's like now, like people have got tired of bringing up uh, the Saudi link to Newcastle United. So now they're talking about how this is a great story and the brilliant job Eddie Howe has done. It's got, he spent more than, you know, he spent a quarter of a, and some of his a billion in a couple of months. Yeah. You know, it's, you know this, got, this isn't a good news story, lads, really yeah. isn't. I, th- I think when you talk about what you're saying there, like on November 21st, England are going to play uh, Iran in the, in the Kafala Stadium. And of all, like, we won't be talking about the Tory party that day. You know, all the atrocities going on in Iran. I'm so curious to see if they get sports washed out of our consciousness that day. Because that's the test. That is it right there. There's, there's things happening in Iran now to women that uh, have, didn't happen in the Stone Ages in this part of the world. Uh, and we're about to... See, I, it, it's going to be ignored and it's going to be disappeared from the consciousness by this massive game between these two nations. And I, I hope that's wrong. I hope that's proved wrong. I hope... I'd love to see a protest in that game. That would be... Oh, that, that would change the world. You know? And it would also then... Because you do have kids watching these games. But I, I don't think it will, you know. I, t- I think the, the football will, will power past it all. Mm. It's all ahead of us. Gents, thank you very much for your time. Gavin Kuminski of the Irish Times, Kieran Cunningham, Chief Sports Writer with the Irish Daily Star. Thank you very much. 